0: Je suis venu vous parler d'Europe. Und das ist ein guter Tag für Europa. Europa. Rolle in stadig viktiger. We have our freedom in our hands. Du lytter til Europa podcast, sponsoreret af 3 Admiral Blaisjean, uh, you are the director general of the EU military staff here in, in Brussels, but you're also the director of the command center, if I might call it like that, here. Um, what is your job, if you were to describe it in a sort of brief uh, headline, what is it you do?
1: Okay, so uh, as you have mentioned, uh, I have two two hats. Uh, the first is being director general of the EU military staff, and in that capacity, I'm providing the military expertise with my staff strong of 200 people from all the member states to all the EU institutions. In my second hat, I'm the director. It's a kind of barbarian name of the military planning and conduct capability. It's the embryo of the operational headquarters in Brussels. And in that capacity, I'm especially
0: today the mission commander of all the EU training missions. So you, you, you do the planning and the day-to-day running of these operations in, in Africa?
1: Yeah, absolutely. We have four training missions in Africa, in Mali, Sahel, Central African Republic, Somalia and Mozambique. We do the conduct, we do the planning. Uh, I have force commanders on the ground and I give them uh, orders and directive and guidance.
0: What is the reason for the EU to do this? Why does the EU need to have these operations? Why do we need to have an EU defense policy?
1: Well, we established the EU in their history without any defense policy, without any military chromosome, I would say. That was after World War II, never that again, so we push away those dealing with with war and so on. We started, in fact, to consider to have a real uh, policy 20 years ago, and then it traction got traction uh, until maybe three four years ago and the reason is that EU took conscience that there are no uh, power collective power and they should have the means and capabilities also to address and to defend and secure
0: their strategic interests collectively what, what kind of military tasks do, do you do? You mentioned training missions, for instance, in, in Africa.
1: So, so th- those missions are uh, to support the armed forces of some uh, partner nations uh, and its integrated approach. So that means it's along with civilian missions, it's along with development tools held by the Commission, for instance. And we have also three operations uh, in MED, Irini. Uh, in Indian Ocean against the piracy, Atalanta, and in Bosnia and Herzegovina, uh Althea operation. So that's all
0: serving the interest of the European Union as collective body. What some people uh, question, some people ask, is why do we need EU defence when we've got NATO? Isn't that what we've got NATO for?
1: Well, we have two different fields of responsibility. NATO is for collective defence. NATO is to secure the integrity, the territorial integrity of all the allied nations. EU, for the defense and security, is acting outside of the border. So, we are not in charge of the defense, uh, of the collective defense. That's NATO. Uh, and whoever are part uh, from NATO and EU, we know have 21 member states who are also uh, NATO uh, nations, uh, they are embedded within that collective defense. But we have to defend our interests, to secure stability in some other areas like Africa,
0: which are important for the security of the European Union. But the EU uh, uh, the EU defense policy is not about uh, territorial defense of, of Europe.
1: No, it's not. Uh, and, and in fact, the common security and defense policy, which has been established by the Lisbon Treaty, forbids to have a mission or operation under the label uh, uh, command, security
0: and defense policy inside the borders of the EU. Does the EU have a sort of common defense guarantee that could be compared to NATO's uh, Article 5?
1: Well, yes, there, there is the existence. And in fact, it was one year, established one year before the Article 5. So it was foreseen. That's Article 42.7, which tried to forces member states to help others that are, Aggressed, but it's always a national
0: answer like in article 5 by the way mm-hmm. so it's not like the eu could decide that now uh, we have to go to war
1: Well, eu it's the member states so any decision needs to be taken at, at collective at consensus by the 27 26 no for the politic for, for the common security and defense policy maybe 27 in some Times uh, we see, uh, but but it's always a consensus, and it, it's always the member states in the driving seat to decide. So, if EU decide to go to war to a country, that means twenty six member states have decided to do so. Okay.
0: Um, once the decision is is made. Um, can a member state be forced? Is there any situation when a member state can be forced to send soldiers uh, to participate in a in a mission or an operation if that member state does not want to do that? No, that situation cannot happen. Uh,
1: what we do when we have a decision to do a mission or an operation. Then we have all the military processes, process to establish operation plan, mission plan, uh, what the personnel are needed, what are the rules of engagement. And then we have a force generation conference where the member states bid or not to participate with such a volume uh, to the operation. But nothing is never mandatory.
0: So if, for instance, <coughs> Denmark were to join uh, this defense uh, policy collaboration in the EU, it would never be possible that Denmark could be forced to send troops or military personnel or material or anything?
1: No, it's, it's not possible. Uh, simply, it's, it's a member state choice. Of course, if Denmark, which I wish personally, joins the Common security and defense policy, that would be a good signal if they are willing and wishing to participate. But there is nothing that can be forced.
0: Uh, once a mission or an operation has been decided, uh, how does the command structure work? Uh, you're a big part of it, of course, yourself, but maybe you could explain a little bit how these forces are commanded.
1: Yeah, so the the three operations are commanded through national headquarters. In fact, two, uh, one uh, Atalanta from Spain. One Irini
0: from uh, Italy. These are the naval operations you're mentioning.
1: Yes, the the, the, the operations against piracy and the operation uh, uh, to um, uh, implement the embargo against weapons to Libya, and the third one is a particular construct what we call Berlin Plus. It's NATO acting for the EU with NATO uh, forces. So it's commanded uh, by um, the vice. Uh, chief of staff, staff of the um, um, operational command of, of NATO. So those people are equivalent of what I am for the EU training missions, and maybe tomorrow I uh, will be also an operation commander if we decide to do so. And we are reporting to the ambassadors of the political and security council. So those ambassadors represent their member states, and they give us collective decisions by consensus to uh, give us a directive and guidance to run the operations.
0: What's the difference between what you call operations and what you call missions?
1: So it's, it's, it's an old, I would say, an old label. Uh, operations are associated with the word executive and mission non-executive. That means operations are more assertive. They have rules of engagement that can allow us to have some time uh, almost, I would say, combat action. The EU training missions are non-executive. That means we don't do operational actions, we don't do combat actions, and we have this uh, framework. And so the main priority, of course, would be the duty of care of
0: the people participating to the missions. So the way this, the command system works now, the, the executive operations are uh, commanded from uh, lead member states.
1: Yeah, that's correct, but tomorrow we are looking after we had adopted this document very important for us called the strategic compass, we are looking at the evolution of the command and control structure. So maybe in the future that will be this growing uh, operational headquarters in
0: Brussels that would be leading some operations. In the Danish debate uh, about EU defense, a debate that's been going on for many, many years now, one of the, the, the expressions we keep hearing is there is an EU army. An EU arming is coming or an EU army exists. Do, does that exist? Is there an EU army? I mean, you should know. Yeah. Well, I would say yes and no.
1: There is no EU army as such belonging to the EU, belonging to an EU command. The EU army is the sum up of all the member states' armed forces. So they constitute an an operational tool that can serve their national interests, that can serve NATO, that can serve the EU. But the concept of an EU army doesn't exist as such, if we are considering that something belongs to the EU as
0: such. EU owns nothing, member states own things. So if Denmark becomes a part of this EU defense policy, and if Danish soldiers are, are sent out to take uh, part in one of them, if, if Denmark decides to send them out, uh, will you be commanding them, uh, Admiral?
1: Well, If they are, for instance, deployed in EU training missions, yes, I will receive operational control of these people, and I will be their commander.
0: Uh, If an EU army doesn't exist, then maybe we should try and explain the difference between uh, the concept of an EU army and the concept that exists in this uh, strategic compass uh, plan that that you mentioned earlier, where the EU is actually talking about creating a sort of uh, rapid deployment force or capacity with up to 5,000 soldiers. Wouldn't that be an EU army?
1: Where? The wording is very important. Vocabulary is very important. It's not a force, it's a capacity. That means it's not a force of 5,000 people waiting forever to be employed by the EU. It's first creating the willingness from the member states to have the ability in the future, and we are looking at the horizon of 2025, to deploy collectively an operation, maybe in some aggressive, non-permissive environment, strong of 5,000 people. And then associated with that, you have a lot of things. You have the first generation, so who will be providing those people? So it could be the revised concept of the EU battle groups, for instance. Could be national. Could be also, why not, a kind of coalition of the will uh, under that that possibility exists in, in the treaty. So there are a lot of different ways to generate. So it's not a force in being, it's more a political will that is taking ground uh, on the strategic compass.
0: Just to make it completely clear, if Denmark were to decide to join the EU defense policy, would we be obliged to take part in this new uh, rapid deployment capacity then?
1: No, once again there is no obligation and so The the way we will generate the the, the rapid deployment capacity in order to act, which is more an ambition than anything else, that would be the same uh, concept that I explained for the other operations and missions. At some point, there will be a force generation process where the the, the member states
0: will, will decide if they want to join or not my last last question admiral is does it really matter does it matter to you uh, and to the eu whether denmark becomes a part of this or not
1: well it it does <laughs> for me personally because i have the experience of having worked with denmark within especially i've been in nato uh headquarters and i know the professionalism and the efficiency of danish soldiers and especially when you decide to engage in an operation mission usually you have no caveat you do it in very very efficient manner so that will certainly bring an added value denmark would bring i would say an operational mind state in addition to the others Altingets EU-podcast er sponsoreret af 3F,
0: fordi Danmark fortjener færre journalistik om EU.